Good morning, College Park. Please take out your Bibles and open to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is the word of God. The theme of the book of 1 Timothy is guard the truth that leads to life. Guard the truth that leads to life. That's what the whole book is about, and that's what we're going to be talking about for the next five weeks or so, and then on to the May, January through May of next year. We, we saw last week that um, God has given the church a deposit, a sacred deposit of his truth, that the, the world needs to know the good news about Jesus Christ, and God has chosen to first reveal that through his son, and then after his son's departure to demonstrate that message to the world. And so therefore, what we think about, how we talk about, how we study the church is really important. The problem is, is that for most of us, our experience of our church or churches in the past inform what we even see and feel today. That's where the book of 1 Timothy comes in. It helps us to understand what the church is supposed to be and do. And uh, last Sunday, we learned by virtue of introduction a little bit about this book. We learned that it was written by Paul to a young man named Timothy, his uh, spiritual son in the faith. We learned that he was stationed in a city of Ephesus, an important location. We learned that uh, Timothy was a little timid, that uh, he wasn't known for being super, super strong, and so Paul had to encourage him. And we also learned that there were some problems that were going on inside of this local church that the Apostle Paul wanted Timothy to address. So this book deals with essentially what the church is to be like, and in particular, the gospel, your godliness, and the glory of God, and how all of these things are on the line as it relates to what the church really is. So the church is something really important for us to think about, to study, and for us to talk about. You don't have to go very far in the book of 1 Timothy to get a clear understanding of why Paul wrote this epistle. In fact, right away we see that the main reason that he writes is because he's wanting Timothy to address some problems in the church. And in particular today, what we're going to talk about is Paul identifies right from the front end some problems that were in this church that he was concerned that the church was beginning to drift, it was beginning to get off track. And from that, we can see some important characteristics of how a church gets off track. In fact, we're going to talk today about three ways that churches get off track, that they get off center. You see, the Apostle Paul was concerned about this church. He must have sensed something maybe even at the very early stages because when he addressed them as elders, when he left them the first time, he warned them about the possibility of them straying from the faith. So take your Bible, keep your place in 1 Timothy, but go with me, will you, over to Acts chapter 20, for I, I want to read this passage together for you, for you to see that Paul was concerned about some threats to this church ministry, and in his last words to the Ephesian elders, he tells them some things, and some things that we need to know by way of context as we walk into 1 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. So again, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, here's what it says. 
Pay careful attention to yourselves. He's addressing the elders of this church. Pay close attention, be careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for God's church, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then he says this, this is really important. And some from among your own selves will arise, men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It seems as if the Apostle Paul, when he leaves Ephesus, anticipates that there will come a day when bad things are going to happen in the context of this local church. And so they ought to always be on guard for what the church is to be like and particularly what its leaders are to do. So Paul seems to anticipate some sort of challenge here. And when he writes Timothy, it seems that these challenges have actually come to fruition. So he tells Timothy what he should fight, what he should focus on, what he should get after, what he should do. And in so doing, he gives us three characteristics of how churches or three ways how churches get off track. So here's the first one. The first one, churches get off track because of bad leadership. Verse 3. He instructs Timothy, he says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. That's the first thing. Secondly, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Paul tells Timothy exactly what he is to do, and he focuses primarily on what Timothy, as the leader, is to do in regards to this local congregation. Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus in order to strengthen the church there, or the churches there, and these churches had been planted by Paul during his missionary journeys. Now you need to know that the city of Ephesus was a very strategic location, a very strategic city. It was the commercial and religious hub for Asia at the time. It was known for its trade, for its um, intelligence, but also it was known predominantly for its religious observance, particularly as it related to the worship of Diana or Artemis. In fact, in the city of Ephesus was the famed temple to Diana. It was at the time one of the seven wonders of the world. It had 127 columns, and they were 197 feet high. This was probably the reason, by the way, why the Apostle Paul said to Timothy that the church is the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. No doubt pillar and buttress of truth would have resonated with the people of Ephesus who had this magnificent temple in their midst. The book of Acts chapter 19 tells us that the city of Ephesus, after having a church planting movement there, and after Paul had been there for some three years, there was a riot that ensued. The apostle Paul was preaching Jesus, people were receiving Christ, and as a result, they weren't going to the temple, Diana, anymore. And as a result, a a silversmith named Demetrius, who made little figurines, got upset because he saw that Paul's evangelistic work was going to hurt his bottom line. If people receive Jesus, they don't go to worship Diana, he won't sell any figurines, and the whole economy of the city will collapse. And so he started a riot. If this guy succeeds, we'll all be out of jobs. I mean, essentially it was an economic argument. And the result was a huge riot. Eventually Paul left that city and um, moved on into other missionary enterprises. But this city became a bit of an outpost for Paul during those three years. He planted a number of other churches in other regions. And so you could imagine that if the famed church at Ephesus were to fall, or were to be somehow imbibing or enjoying or embracing false doctrine or false teaching, the effect would be significant on other surrounding churches. So this is one of the reasons why he sends his spiritual son, Timothy, to this strategic location to try and firm up 
the theological and pastoral dynamics that were going on inside of that church. Notice that first he urges Timothy to remain at Ephesus. We don't know exactly what was going on here. It may have been that Timothy had requested that he be moved to some other location. We're not exactly sure what it was that happened in terms of the conversation between he and Paul. But when he says remain, that word remain doesn't just mean stay put. That word actually means to cleave to, to be joined in. The idea is perseverance. The idea is faithful adherence. In other words, when he says remain at Ephesus, he means, Timothy, I want you to stay engaged. I want you to stay there and remain in these people's lives. In fact, 1 Timothy 5.5 uses the same word to refer to how widows are to pray. It says that, referring to a widow, she continues, there's the word, in supplications and prayers night and day. So in regards to pastoral ministry, what this means is it reflects this commitment to personally care for people, to to personally care for their souls, to be faithful and persevering, especially, especially through difficulties. The calling here is for Timothy to patiently endure the challenges of the situation. To be frank, sometimes the best thing someone in spiritual leadership can do is simply wait out, wait them out. There's some folks in my, my last church, and you know, they were just really at times hard and difficult, like every church has. And one of my strategies was my goal was I was going to outlive them. <laughs> and in some cases I did. And that's just, that's some, that's part of the pastoral strategy is stick there, stay there, tell them the truth, and don't leave. Now, granted, God moves people at various times and locations, but there needs to be a fundamental commitment that, look, I'm going to stick in the middle of this hardship in the situation, and I'm going to see this thing through. Jesus talked about nearly the same thing in John chapter 10. Got your Bible? Let's look at that passage. Jesus uses an analogy of a shepherd. And he tells us the difference between a shepherd and a hireling or a hired hand. And the difference is the shepherd owns the sheep. He cares for the sheep. He loves the sheep. But a hired hand doesn't have any relationship with the sheep. And so when danger comes, the hired hand runs away. Whereas when danger comes, the shepherd runs to the problem. So the question is, when problems come, where do you run? Do you run away from it or run to it? That's the difference between a shepherd and a hireling. Look at John chapter 10. Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming, and what does he do? He leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them up and scatters them. He flees. This is really important. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Notice how different Jesus is. I am am the good shepherd. Aren't you glad that Jesus ran to the problem of your sin? So Jesus is the good shepherd, whereas a hired hand, a hireling, runs away. And so what Paul is talking about here is a leader's orientation on how they respond to problems. The first mark of a bad leader or bad leaders is that they run away from problems. They run away from issues. They run away from challenges. Good leaders care for the sheep by laying down their lives, which often looks like not leaving them, not giving in, and embracing endurance. As we'll see later, I'm not just talking about spiritual leaders like pastors. I'm talking about small group leaders. I'm talking about ABF leaders. I'm talking about people who are dads and moms. 
And the question we all got to think about is this. So when a problem comes, do I run away from it or do I run to it? If you really care for the person and you really have a heart for them, you will run to the problem, not away from it. What Paul is telling Timothy here is remain at Ephesus, run to the problem, stay in there and endure. Second thing he says is he charges him. He says, I charge you, or he instructs him rather, to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he urges him to make this charge. What does this mean? The word charge means to command. It's a Greek word meaning para-angelo. It means to call or beside to call, to call to announce. The idea is you're heralding, you're warning, you're saying, hey, watch out, look out, don't do that, watch. And with clarity and conviction. To call alongside, to call out, is what Jesus did to the demons in Luke chapter 8. It's what he did in a teaching way to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. And the idea is firm, clear, authoritative instruction. That's why it's sometimes uh, translated as charge or command. It's what I believe my role on Sunday mornings is here. It's not just for us to talk. It's not just for us to, to have a conversation. It is my aim is to herald the news, to tell you, to charge you. I think good leaders are those who run to problems. They don't run away from problems. And they also, with a clear conviction, declare what God says. So Paul shows us here the difference between good leaders and bad leaders. Timothy was instructed to embrace his God-given authority and take a firm, assertive stance when it came to leading the church. Now, there's no excuse for being rude or being quarrelsome or being argumentative. Clearly, the characteristics of elder rule those sorts of behaviors out. But Timothy and all spiritual leaders are called to be less than spineless. They are called to be clear. So how do churches get off track? How do families get off track? How do small groups get off track? How do ABFs get off track? They get off track by bad leaders who run away from problems and shy away from telling people the truth. You see, this is why in College Park we have a counseling ministry or soul care ministry. The reality is I couldn't live in a church where on a Sunday I said to you, you need to change your life. And then if you called on Monday, we said, oh, yeah, we're not sure how to help you with that. (laughs) That would feel like pastoral mispractice. To call you to change on Sunday and then to say, well, on Monday through Saturday, we really don't know what to do. you got to go see somebody else for how how to figure that out. That doesn't seem like that really works that well. And therefore, that would affect how I would preach. I wouldn't preach strongly or directly. I wouldn't call you to really change your life if I didn't believe that God's Word has the authority to actually help you change Monday through Saturday. One of the reasons we have a counseling ministry is because we believe God's Word is sufficient. And and I believe that everybody shares their opinion, and you're a person who gives counsel. The question is whether or not it's good and godly counsel. So one of the things you've got to think through individually, and we have to think corporately together, is this. When problems come our direction, do we run to them or do we run away from them? And I envision a church who so robustly believes in the gospel and who so loves the word of God that we could say to people in our church and even eventually outside of the church, if you got problems, we got the answer. Go ahead and come. Because we want to be shepherds of people's souls, not hired hands who run away when wolves are seeking to devour them. And I think churches get off track when their leaders run away from problems. I think families get off track when mom or dad run away from problems. Instead, you need to be empowered to be equipped to know how to handle God's word. And you know, there's some great people in our church who know how to handle God's word, how to deal with life's problems. And I would encourage you that when they teach something about how to handle God's word with life problems, you ought to be there so you can be a good shepherd, you can be a good dad, 
You can be a good mom and not just know that you ought to have an opinion, but actually to have a biblical opinion. So good leadership, first and foremost, is someone who understands the importance of running two problems to being persevering and somebody who is able to speak with conviction. You know, the other problem is that in, a, in our culture, um, we, we don't espouse perseverance all that much. I mean, think about it. Has your patience level increased in the last five years or decreased? I mean, mine's decreased significantly. If I have to wait more than four and a half seconds on a Google search, I get really upset, right? <laughs> Seriously, it's really kind of messed me up. I go through a drive-thru, I'm timing them. How long does this take? How long does this take? If I see four cars in the Starbucks drive-thru, I'm like, no, I'm going in. You know, I, I'll go in, I get closer and kind of, you know, get up nice and close to make them hurry up because I want my stuff, I want it fast. The problem is, is that that's part of the cultural air that we breathe now. In fact, we have not only this mentality with our search engines and how we drive our cars and how we order our drinks at Starbucks, but we also have this in regards to our marriages, our relationships. And when, when people have issues, we, we're, we're not a very persevering people. John Piper, reflecting on that, says this. Listen, one of the pervasive marks of our times is emotional fragility. It hangs in the air we breathe. We are easily hurt. We pout. We mope easily. We blame easily. We break easy. Our marriages break easy. Our faith breaks easy. Our happiness breaks easy. Our commitment to church breaks easy. We are easily disheartened, and it seems we have little capacity for surviving and thriving in the face of criticism and opposition. Isn't that true? We get one person who says something to me. Someone posts something on your Facebook page. You're like, ah! You're like, unfriend, 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 right? I mean, he's, he's getting after it. He's so mad. You can't handle any. You don't even think about what they may have meant by that. No, it's just you're so easily wounded. That's part of the air that we breathe. And then he says this. We see very few healthy, happy examples of those whose lives spell out in flesh and blood the rugged words, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. Man, that's true, isn't it? We do not live in a very enduring culture. That's one of the problems. Let me tell you the other problem. When it comes to truth and clarity in our culture, we live in an increasingly hostile culture to someone says, this is what God says about your life. For us to say, this is right and this is wrong, we live in a culture that's not very accepting of that. In fact, our culture prizes tolerance in every arena, except when somebody in a religious environment says, no, this is the one way, the only way. John Stott, reflecting on this years ago, predicting that this would happen, says this. Listen, contemporary culture is being overtaken and submerged by the spirit of postmodernism. Postmodernism begins as a self-conscious reaction against the modernism of enlightenment and especially against its unbounded confidence in reason, science, and progress. The postmodern mind declares that there is no such thing as objective or universal truth. That all so-called truth is purely subjective, purely culturally conditioned, and therefore we each have our own truth, which is as much, has much right to respect as anyone else's. Everybody has his or her own truth. You have your truth, I have mine, and in consequence, the most prized value or virtue is tolerance. It tolerates everything except the intolerance of those who insist that certain ideas are true and others are false, while certain practices are good and others are evil. So you see why the church is really important? Because in the midst of a culture that doesn't really endure a whole lot, and in the midst of a culture that isn't really that interested in, thus says the Lord, the church is called to guard the truth that leads to life. And not just do that corporately, but you're called to do that individually. 
You're called to do that in your small groups, in your families, in your ABF classes. You're called to do that in children's ministry, in youth ministry, wherever God has you. You're called to do that when you counsel people. We are called to guard the truth that leads to life. And churches get off track when its leaders, first, run away from problems, or secondly, refuse to speak the truth of what God's Word says. Listen, one of my aims on a regular basis is that you should come in here and if you feel good for like six weeks in a row, if you're like, yeah, 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 either you're not listening or I'm not doing my job, right? You, you should walk away at least because I feel convicted over what I say, right? So certainly you should feel it as well. The reality is the Bible speaks very clearly about what's wrong with our hearts and our lives. And we don't listen and we don't learn when we simply hear truth that we always simply, that always lands on our hearts that feels really good. So you need to know that every once in a while my aim is to make you incredibly uncomfortable. That's right. We want you to be comfortable, 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 have a great spot, great seat, great view, great images, and then be really uncomfortable under the Word of God. That's what we want. That's our aim. We call it our spiritual bait and switch. You see, that's what we're longing for. I think that's good for your soul. I think that's what pastoral leadership is implicitly, implicitly involves. Now, secondly, there's more, is this notion of false teaching. Not only is there bad leadership, but churches get off track because of false teaching. Look at verse 3, the latter part. He says, remain in Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he's talking about false teaching. Teaching that results in ungodliness. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. So it's hard because the book of 1 Timothy doesn't really define for us what this false teaching was. It appears to be different than what Paul dealt with at this church at Galatia. In the city of Galatia, the problem was people coming from the outside, people coming from Jerusalem who had a a really strict view of the law. And they said, in order to be a Christian, you've got to be circumcised. In order to be a real Christian, you've got to be circumcised. And and, and whatever you do, don't eat pork either. And they got their little finger in people's face and, and this legalism. And Paul was battling that in Galatia. And the city of Corinth, he was battling something different where people were now taking all of these um, beliefs in their culture. Well, well, legalism was the problem in Galatia. Um, integrationism was the problem in Corinth. They were just taking all this Greek philosophy and, and, and Gnosticism and they were just kind of mixing it all into Christianity and, and that led to some kind of weird stuff that was going on and this asceticism and kind of a higher knowledge. And it appears that that's sort of the thing that what's going on in the city of Ephesus, rather similar to what was taking place in the city of Colossae. The issue was somehow internal, spiritual, and pastoral. As well, we know that the effects of this false teaching was destructive arguments and disagreements, pride, divisiveness, and greed. And, and further, Paul tells us that, according to 2 Timothy 3, it had particular appeal, whatever the false teaching was, is it landed in the church in Ephesus with a group of young women. Now, it doesn't mean that young women are particularly gullible. I I know as many young men who are gullible and as many older folks who are gullible. But if you've been around church, you know that usually false teaching lands on a particular group. Maybe it's a small group or an ABF class or a group of people that go to a conference together and they come back and, and, and before you know it, there's this controversy in this individual group. Well, in 1 Timothy, it was this controversy landed with a group of young women. And so Timothy has to deal with this. So Paul seems to list for us four different characteristics, and I just want to give these to you. These are characteristics to watch out for in terms of what false teaching often looks like. It doesn't always look like all of these, but when you see something that has one of these characteristics, just just note it and, and, and be careful. 
The first one is this. Paul calls the false teaching a different doctrine. So mark this down. Oftentimes false teaching presents itself as something new, as a new and improved understanding. Paul actually kind of makes up a word here. He calls it the heterodidaskaleo, meaning the against teaching or the other teaching. The word means a departure or a deviation from apostolic instruction. And the result was this new and improved understanding of maybe who Jesus was or what spiritual life was like ended up making Jesus himself different according to the understanding of their doctrine. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus, or or Paul rather, warned about in the book of Galatians. He said, you're preaching a different Jesus. You're believing a different gospel. So Paul's charge to Timothy was to take the truth and put it back in front of the people. Help them know what real truth is. Remind them about it. And so therefore, just be aware that when somebody comes out with a book or a conference or a material, and all of a sudden they've found the new thing that, you know what, just be careful. I've just found over the years that there's not a whole lot new. And if you think you found something new, yeah, you're probably about ready to go off the reservation. Here's the second thing. The second characteristic is that it had a, a notion of mysticism attached to it. There was this kind of spooky mysticism, this spiritual thing. It's got a, a lot of feelings. Not that feelings are bad. But I've had people before say to them, I just, I just feel like this is right. Well, they may not be able to discern if that's God speaking or their pizza from lunch. So they just, they, they, they need to be careful that feelings don't always mean that God really is speaking. He says they were giving into myths, this historical legends or fables or Jewish stories. And there, there was this, this parallel body of knowledge and they're dabbling in this and these myths were beginning to inform, um, their understanding of God more than what it needed to. And so Paul is battling not only this legalism from Galatia and other settings and this Gnosticism in Corinth, but now he's, he's battling this, this higher knowledge, this mysticism, this sort of feeling-oriented teaching. So just be careful when someone says, I got this new thing and you'll feel really good about it. Yeah, just be careful. Here's the third thing. Is it focused on genealogies? The third thing is there was an intellectual appeal to it. I've seen this happen where some new teaching comes out and it focuses on, man, if you come to this conference, read this book, you'll be part of the in-group. You'll really know things that nobody else knows. We found the secret. We found the four ways, the four rules. We found the four key things to being free in Christ. And while that might work great for selling books, it's often not real good for keeping things orthodox. This genealogy somehow probably relates to a couple books that were prevalent during this time. The, um, a book called The Book of Jubilees, another book called Philo's Questions and Answers in Genesis, another book called The, the Book of Biblical Antiquities. And, and these books had like long lists of genealogies that listed like other sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, uh, Enoch and Noah's family, and, and then the 70 people who went into Egypt. And they took these genealogies and thought they could find special knowledge about God by diving into them. And so they had these arguments and these discussions, and the result was, was meaningless conflict. You ever been a part of that group? Ever been sitting in a Sunday school class? And you're like, nobody cares about this. Why are we arguing about this? What's the point? And you can go on and on and on and on and you just have to be careful because this intellectual, overly intellectual focus can be a part of false teaching. Here's the final one, and that is it just produces confusion. People are like, what? what? What's, what's going on here? And as a result, it, Paul calls it endless genealogies. It promotes speculations, which means philosophical investigation, debate, disputes, endless questioning. And the result is 
some pretty bad stuff. You, you can know something's false by, does it produce godliness in people? Or by discussing this, do we have, do we have more sin being created? Are there disputes and arguments and fights and divisiveness that's happening? In fact, Paul, later on in 1 Timothy, talks about people who teach like this and notice some of the things he says about them. 1 Timothy 6 says this, For if anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Wow, that's a statement. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. See, Paul's concerned here about false teaching and its effect on the body. So as you can see, false teaching was deeply concerning to the Apostle Paul, especially since it wasn't coming just from people outside the church. It was actually coming from people inside the church. And so Timothy's been given a tall order. He has to confront some of these church leaders about where they are taking this body of believers. So how does a church get off track? How does it get off track in its teaching? By not carefully considering what's being taught and by not taking the truth of God's Word seriously enough. And at the same time, the church can also get off track by being so stuck in old forms and old methods that are treated as if they are the very Word of God. So we've got two extremes on either side. On the one hand, you have legalism. On the other hand, you have theological liberalism. Legalism is taking something that's a preference and making it central, like real Christians use the ESV, right? So taking a preference and then making it core to the Christian faith, where liberalism is taking something that should be core and making it a preference. Well, Jesus died for our sins. Well, kind of. You don't really have to believe that to be a Christian, really. So liberalism is taking an orthodox issue, making it a preference, where legalism is taking a preference and making it orthodox. And all throughout the history of the church, the church has had to keep out of either of these two ditches. Churches get off track when there is no clear teaching that helps people understand the difference between a a central issue and a circumference issue. One of my roles as a dad is to help my kids know what's a central issue and what's a circumference issue. My role as a pastor is to help you understand what is a central issue and what is a circumference issue. Hey, we shouldn't argue about this. Just love each other. Just get over it and just just go shoot hoops, eat pizza, and have a good time. Don't worry about this. And there's other things like you, you cannot hang out with this person like this. this. This person doesn't even believe the gospel. And so understanding where the difference is is incredibly important. So we have bad leadership. Secondly, a false teaching. Here's the third thing, and that is there's a, a wrong focus. This relates to, so, so what is it that you really think is the main thing? What, what's the heart? What's the, what's the main point? We find this in uh, the latter part of verse 4 and also the first part of verse 5. It says these things promote speculations, and then here it comes, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So a church gets off track when it has a wrong focus. And Paul tells us what the right focus is. And the right focus involves two things. And good churches always have these two things deeply embedded in their culture. And they are the gospel and love. 
When a church gets the gospel right and love right, it's a beautiful place. When the church gets the gospel right but love wrong, it's not a very enjoyable place to be. And when they get love right and the gospel wrong, it's not a very safe place to be theologically. So the key is that you have both issues in balance, two elements that are essential for any church to be everything that God intends for her to be. Now, where is the gospel identified in here? Well, it's identified in the word stewardship, because that word stewardship means a work or the management of another's household. The idea is that God has given the church, again, this deposit, a steward, a message that's been given from God. So he says these false teachings promote speculations rather than the stewardship, the message we've been given from God that is by faith. What is this message? Well, you heard it professed by so many people in baptism. This message, the stewardship that we've been given, is the simple gospel message that we're sinners, God is holy, and Jesus made a way for our hearts to be changed from the inside out and for us to receive Christ as Savior such that God wipes our sins away. That's not a message that you made up. That's a message you've been given by God. We find it in the Scriptures. And this message, the stewardship, changes our lives. It's the reason why these folks got baptized. And it is the central message of the church. There's a lot of other messages of the church, but the central message is that Jesus Christ died for sinners. That's the heart of everything that the church is. It says the stewardship is by faith. This is really important because most false teaching has some element of works connected to it. And so most false teaching has the difference between works and faith or works and grace. So this is a stewardship that God has given this message about how to have your sins forgiven, how to have a new relationship with your creator, how to have God fix the inside of your heart. And this comes by receiving it by faith. You believe in it. You don't work for it. That's the huge difference between so many churches. And I think the Bible tells us the difference between heaven and hell. And hell will be filled with people who thought that all of their activities, their, their, their baptism, their confirmation, their church membership, their service, their money, their giving, their morality, somehow made them right in front of God. And Paul says, no, 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 no. It's a stewardship that comes by faith. And so false teaching can come by virtue of just what you do with faith and how it relates to works. We also see it in verse 5, this gospel. It says the aim of our charge is love. And then it says this, that springs or that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is what this is what the gospel does. There's faith in Jesus. A person is cleansed of their sin. That's the pure heart. A good conscience, meaning they're now free from guilt. Can you, can you imagine? Some of you are here today and you feel so guilty. And you should. Do you know guilt is a gift? Guilt is a gift to, to tell you, look, there's something wrong with your life. And when Jesus comes, he wipes away the guilt. He he declares over you, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what the gospel brings. It brings a cleansed heart. It it brings a a freedom from guilt, knowing that all of your sins have been paid for. It doesn't mean that you think you're not a sinner anymore. No, on the contrary. You know you're a horrible, awful, awful sinner. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. But you just have to receive someone who is perfect. That being Jesus. And so there's this notion of a pure heart, a good conscience, and also a sincere faith. But that's not all. That's the gospel. Secondly, there's also this idea of love. He says the aim of our charge is love. The aim, the aim, the purpose, the the goal, the aim of our charge is love. So his role as a pastor is not just to teach people the truth, but to teach them the truth that leads to loving one another. So understand this, that when the truth is properly guarded, it will lead to love in the body. 
A well-taught, gospel-centered, Jesus-focused church will overflow with love for one another. So we don't need sermons on love alone. We need sermons that point us to the gospel, and that gospel produces love for each other. Because the more you understand the beauty of how God has loved you, you are compelled, drawn, and long to love other people. So if you want to motivate people to love each other, talk to them often about the gospel and the beauty of what God has done for them. You see, without the gospel, we'd have no love. This love becomes the defining mark of what it means to live out the gospel. And it needs to be the way that we live and conduct our lives. I remember there was an older gentleman in my church who got really upset about something that happened in the Sunday school class. And he, he thought that I was to blame for it. He ended up walking out in the middle of a Sunday school class, was really upset. He was an old guy that was born in Poland and fought in World War II. He's just a hard-nosed kind of guy. Sweet man inside, but you had to get through kind of a rough, rough, crusty exterior, if you know what I mean. So he left, and he was all upset, and uh, I knew he was mad, and he was mad at me. So after the service, I went to his house. I knew where he lived, and I knocked on his door. His wife, Jean, came to the door, and she looked at me like, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, are you crazy? You know, he's mad. I was like, hey, can I, can I see John? And she was like, I don't know if you should. I said, Jean, can I just try? And she said, all right. He's down in the basement. And so I walked over to the edge of the basement stairwell, and he was down there. I could hear him tinkering around his workshop. And I said, hey, John, John, it's Pastor Mark. In a classic style, he said, I don't want to talk to you. Get out of here. I'm mad at you. I said, I know, John. What are you doing here anyways? And then I said, John, I love you. Long silent. You know what to do with that one. And then he said, well, I love you too. Get down here. And so then I came downstairs. <laughs> and there we sat on his uh, stools in his workshop, started talking about what was going on in his world. Turns out he was hurting. He was mad about that. It had nothing to do with me. His sister had cancer. He was frustrated. It just, it just blew up. And so that's what, that's what, that's what pastoral ministry is. It's, it's the gospel, but it's also it's, it's, it's getting out there in, in love. The aim of our charge is love. So if you come to church today and the only purpose for your being here is just to hear and learn and listen, that's not the full orb reality of what the church is to be. It is that you should be loved and love other people. So churches get off track when in the name of, the, of love, they, they decrease the emphasis on the gospel. Churches get off track when they do good for good's sake rather than good for gospel's sake. Look, we do a lot of good things. I met with our local outreach team a week and a half ago. There's some amazing things happening downtown Indianapolis and around the perimeter in terms of what we're doing to help rescue babies from abortion, to help people who have legal issues, to help moms in the Brookside neighborhood who don't have a friend and, and need counseling and help. There are so many awesome things. But you know what? We're not doing that just to do good. We're doing that good for gospel's sake. Churches get off track when they make unity the the root of the gospel like we're all one big church well maybe if you believe the gospel but just because you have the name church on your building doesn't mean that you are a real bible believing church unity is the fruit of the gospel not the root of the gospel but as well churches get off track when they think that teaching the truth is more important than living the truth and how they love each other so they get off track when it's more important who you've read and who you can quote than who you loved Churches get off track when the Bible studies are full and nursery volunteer rosters are empty. When books are sold but lawns aren't mowed. 
when money's given to reach the nations, but the widow and orphan in your own community are neglected. You see, in order for a church to be everything it needs to be, there needs to be both. So the gospel is certainly not separated from love, but it's more important than love, certainly. But you can't have the real gospel without loving one another. It's the fruit that Jesus says by which people will know that you really are his disciples. So how do churches get off track? They get off track with bad leaders, with false teaching, and a wrong focus. Let me just give you this final charge, and it's this. You might think that this is just about the church, the organization, the elders, deacons, the structure of the church ministry, but I, I, I want you to think even more, I want you to think smaller than that. Because you know how churches get off? They, they, they get off track, not by virtue of just big issues. They get off track, one person, one small group, one ministry at a time. They get a bad leader, a bad teaching, bad dynamics. This means that where you are in, whatever group you're in, however you are doing life and doing community, God's calling you today to be a good leader, to be sure you're embracing good teaching and be sure you've got the right focus. It means that if you're a dad or a mom, you're, you're called to, to, to be a good leader. It means that you're called to stick in there when problems come. I mean, I'm, I'm sure some of you have really difficult people in your small group. You know what I'm talking about? The kind of people you pray they don't come. Oh, Lord, please let them be sick. Please. And, and, then they, and then they show up at your house. You're like, welcome. In the back of your mind, you're like, rats. You know? And then they, they say really awkward things in the group. And you're like, I don't know what to do with that. Or they, 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 they say something that's really bad and wrong. And you can't go, well, that might be true to you. You need to say, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong. You know, and you just need to say it in front of the whole group. And yet God calls you to be clear and to have conviction, but also to be loving and to be a good leader and not run away from problems, but run to them. So I want to call you dad to not run, run, not run away from the problems in your kids' lives. You can't just farm it off to mom and say, well, she'll handle it, or that's what the youth pastor is for. No, man, that's what you're there for. You've got to know how to, how to handle the word. You know, know how to ask tough questions that you don't want the answers to. You've got to get in there and stick in it for the sake of your kids and the glory of Christ in your home. You are called to be a godly leader. Mom, you're called to be the same thing. It's not just your husband's responsibility for the spiritual nurturing. He's to lead that, but you've got to be in there too. And the question is, do you know what the Bible says about life's problems? Or are you just kind of floating around with the, with the wrong focus, with the wrong perspective? You're bringing in bad teaching in the context of your home or your small group. And at the end of the day, when there's a problem, you're AWOL. You are not a shepherd, you're a hireling. The call is not just for the church as a whole to be like this. The call is for each of us individually to be like this. Because churches don't just get off track. Small groups get off track. ABF classes get off track. Children's ministries get off track. And... Families get off track. So here's my charge. My charge is this simple. So College Park, guard the truth that leads to life in every arena of your life. Guard the truth that leads to life in every arena of your life. And that'll help you not to get off track. Father, we pray that today you'd help us to follow your heart and to know what it means to be a fully committed follower of yours. I pray for some who may be here today and they're trying to figure out the claims of Christ, what it means to have the gospel, to be a part of their heart and their soul in the first place, and that, Lord, today they might see the beauty of who your son is and might realize their need to have Christ come in and take control and be Lord, Savior, Master, and King. And, Father, for others who, frankly, are AWOL on their responsibilities, for those who may have difficult people and circumstances and need courage today, I pray that you would just use this text and this word and this time to embolden and strengthen their faith. 
for the glory and the fame of your name. Give us courage. Give us conviction. Give us Christ-likeness. Give us humility. We need all of it, Lord, in order to be the kind of people in the church, the kind of husbands and mothers, the kind of small group leaders, the kind of Sunday school teachers that you want us to be. So help us, Lord. Your church is that important, and the truth is worth guarding it in every arena. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, if there's something going on in your world and you feel like, man, this was huge for my heart today, do something with it, will you? Just come and pray with one of these folks up here. Maybe you got something else that's just a problem or a real burden. They're here to minister and to bless you today, okay? I love you. Thanks for coming today, College Park. Have a great day.